0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. This past Wednesday, Interfaith Alliance released the comprehensive new report, Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online. As part of that release, we hosted an expert panel discussion that I was privileged to moderate. On this week's show, you'll hear the warnings and strategies the panelists Zeki Barzinji, Lauren Kropp, and Paul Barrett brought to the discussion. We'll also dig into the contents of the Big Tech Hate and Religious Freedom Online report with Interfaith Alliance Advocacy Associate Rhea Coley. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by More People them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelieve.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance at joinus at interfaithalliance.org. And now to our panel. The large turnout for an online event just underscored how important the subject matter is right now. On Wednesday, Interfaith Alliance brought together leading experts to discuss big tech, hate, and religious freedom online, and I'm eager for you to hear what they had to say. Seki Barzinji is program director for Aspen Digital, where he oversees a range of projects at the intersection of tech policy, equity, and justice for unrepresented communities. Lauren Kropp serves as the Anti-Defamation League's Council for Technology, Policy, and Advocacy. Her work includes advocacies to support targets of online harassment and hold social media companies accountable for their role in fomenting extremism, hate, and anti-Semitism and racism. Lauren spearheads ADL's anti cyber harassment initiative, Backspace Hate. Paul Barrett is the Deputy Director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at New York University's Stern School of Business. Paul has focused on producing a series of reports on the role and obligations of the social media industry in a democracy, including the debate over the liability of social media platforms for harmful content and the role of social media companies in the intensifying political polarization in the United States. So here we go with our discussion of big tech, hate, and religious freedom online. I want to invite each of you um, on this day. Uh, waking up this morning, you know where the internet is right now. What is the most pressing issue facing uh, us today? What What would you like to start out with as the thing that you want to be focusing on right now, uh, Lauren? Why don't I start with you?
1: Thank you so much, and thanks the Interface Alliance. I'm I'm really happy to be here and engaging in this conversation today uh, with my fellow panelists. You know, it is tough to pick one thing to focus on when we're talking about online hate and harassment and certainly extremism as well. The online world is essentially a faster and more connected extension of our physical world. And I think that that is a really important point to revisit again and again, because the actions um, that happen online do have consequences, both online and offline, people's livelihoods and networks, our identities are increasingly shaped by our ability to function safely online. That's why ADL is committed to protecting those rights, just as we have protections in the offline world. We don't want individuals to check their rights before going online. You know, in 2017, ADL launched our Center for Technology and Society to take our 100-plus-year-old mission and really focus in what that looks like in the online world to fight hate and extremism, racism and anti-Semitism. So what's the one thing to focus on? This might be dodging that question, but I think really it's to ensure that there's a whole-of-society approach to these issues and that that lens of considering the online Uh, ramifications and the offline impact of our digital hygiene, of digital abuse, of hate and harassment online, that lens is applied across the board. You know, I think whether it's legislative, education-focused, industry, um, and beyond, we we really need that to be a lens applied as opposed to focusing on one particular issue. So, really happy to be here and engage in that conversation. And at the end of the day, we just we want individuals to be able to operate
0: safely and freely online. Professor uh, Barrett Paul, would you uh, would you go next?
2: Sure thing. Um, I think along with uh, Lauren, I'm gonna have to uh, engage in some civil disobedience here and not identify one issue. Um, And I think her comment um, that thinking about this in those terms will will actually lead us in in the wrong direction. It is a hugely complex uh, problem we face, which is to say the unintended side effects of this technology that now is so uh, influential um, for the vast majority of our society. In light of that, I wanna, I'll want to i bring your attention to a couple of things that I think people are not talking about very much without um, labeling them the most urgent issues. Uh, the, the first of these um, is economics. The economics of Silicon Valley um, has changed radically um, over the last uh, 8, 10, 12 months. Um, an industry which was used to a combination of... Um, basically free money in the, in the form of, of uh, rock bottom uh, interest rates um, and a generally uh, healthy economy is now grappling um, with a uh, possible recession and rising of interest rates. And you're seeing um, company after company in that area laying off thousands and thousands uh, of workers. Why is this relevant to religion, hate, and so forth? It's relevant because I fear that among the first uh, corporate functions to suffer in this environment will be content moderation operations and general policymaking and enforcement uh, concerns um, uh, that uh, are the best hope, actually, for the form of self-regulation that we need um, in this industry. So to stop anti-Semitism on Twitter, you need people within Twitter who are paying attention to anti-Semitism. But one of the first things that Uh, Elon Musk did upon taking over was more or less fire all the people uh, paying attention to these issues, not just anti-Semitism, but um, making decisions about um, what material should be on the site and what material should not be on the site or should be demoted on the site. Uh, Similarly, um, my impression is that uh, based on conversations with people at Meta, Um, that I've had recently um, that the focus um, from the CEO and founder of the company on down that was really prominently described circa 2017, 2018 into 2019 has now largely disappeared. And now the entire uh, organization, Meta, tens of thousands of people, first of all, people are, are worried about the person who used to sit next to them who's now been laid off. Um, but the uh, the focus to issues of uh, security, safety, content moderation on the site has largely evaporated at the top. And that at an, at a, uh, an organization that's very heavily influenced by what the leader says um, trickles down through the system and will have, uh, I think, very deleterious effects uh, on the rest of that very uh, influential company. Um, so maybe i'll leave it at that because i'm a big believer in short remarks and lots of q a but focus on the economics we're dealing with a different industry today than the industry we were dealing with just a year ago
0: both immensely interesting uh opening comments Uh, zeki can can you can you take it
3: next yeah sure thanks and i'm also wanted to echo my um appreciation and gratitude for being invited to the space i'm a big fan of interfaith alliance big fan of Reverend Paul and his predecessor and you know I really as you may have heard from my you know bio this is a this issue this set of issues is really at the core of what I what I believe in and what I'd like to work on um just to kind of piggyback real quickly off of uh the other Paul's remarks uh in terms of the economic drivers behind um a lot of the problems that we're seeing now um there's an article that came out in Wired I think just two days ago uh, with a uh, with a new concept being um, proposed that perhaps is not the most savory for um, f- uh, faithful people, but the word that they used, uh, if you'll forgive me, is called the "inshitification" of online platforms. And in other words, the 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 process by which social media platforms are becoming more and more shitty, so to speak. And again, apologies for the uh, the profanity. Um, But the author posed, this is exactly how digital platforms die, which is first digital platforms are good to their users. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. And then finally they die. These are the economics behind how social media platforms work. And they are the reason why there's economic incentive to amplify, spread, and pour fuel on the gasoline of hateful speech and fire. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, for me, just kind of at a macro level, the overarching issue is that we are experiencing a period of explosive innovation and, and, and advancement, especially when it comes to, you know, AI-driven uh, technology. The problem is that those responsible for building that future are a tiny select few and so the innovation that we're seeing really only fully serves a tiny select few um, with the most marginalized populations getting even more marginalized with every new advancement. In other words, you know, unless things change drastically, the future that is being decided today will not serve all communities because it is not being built by or with all communities. So even if tech companies wanted to do more to confront the spread of hate, and I have my doubts, um, they're extremely ill-equipped right now to deal with it comprehensively because they have not empowered the most directly affected communities at every step of the product design process. And as Paul said, in fact, they're actually shrinking those, uh, those teams, or shrinking those efforts to actually include those communities in the design of products. Um, and in other cases, they're actually exploiting communities of color. Uh, another article just came out that said, um, you know, chatbot GPT, which everyone is a fan of using now for all sorts of different purposes, that OpenAI, the company that makes chatbot GPT, was actually using Kenyan workers, was paying Kenyan workers less than $2 an hour to actually do the content moderation policies to make chat GPT less toxic. So they were paying below minimum wage African workers to do the job of making that platform more safe. That is not a sustainable, equitable, or justice-oriented model uh, for confronting hate. So I'll leave it at that, but just wanted to say like kind of the fundamental thing behind all of this is the communities themselves are not part of the design process. They're not part of building our future. And that's why the future that's being built is looking more dystopian than utopian.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I wanna just bring in religion here. Um, you know, this is like a main lens for me. I understand that it might not be a uh, the primary lens for everyone on the panel, but I think it's important to talk a little bit about The experience of hate of religious communities or religious individuals and the communities um, and how that is directly linked to what you've already been talking about. So does anybody want to address that talk about the specifics of religion and religious lived experience online.
1: I'm happy to jump in first and talk a little bit about um, some of the research that ADL has found when it specifically relates to online harassment in in religious communities. Generally speaking, um, to to step back for a moment, we conduct a yearly survey regarding the uh, experiences of Americans as it relates to online hate and harassment. And the trends are unsurprising that individuals are harassed online at alarming rates Um, but more specifically, individuals are harassed because of their identity characteristics. And just a few statistics that focus specifically on religion. Um, 78% of Muslim respondents this year for our, well, for our 2022 survey, because that's the most recent data, and 68% of Jewish respondents attributed, uh, who experienced harassment, attributed that harassment to their identity characteristics. And 44% of all respondents who were harassed um, due to their religion, were worried about future harassment. I think that these high numbers really illustrate um, the unique and problematic characteristics of harassment and hate online when it when it comes to religion, which is that this is not only about the individual, but it's about the community generally. It's a message that's being sent, and that spike in fear for future harassment, whether online or offline, you know, runs through. Uh, runs through conversations, run through, runs through fear during worship, runs through fear in community conversations. You know, we saw, of course, spikes in Zoom bombings during religious high holidays for uh, all of the major religions and, and you know, hate speech in in chats uh, during those live streams. Um, and unfortunately, we're, we're, we're not seeing any sort of curtailment or um, or responsibility being taken uh, by the platforms or or meaningful meaningful responsibility. As as, you know, Paul mentioned about Twitter, um, ADL did a a, a little investigation in the two weeks before um, Elon Musk started and the two weeks after Elon Musk started as CEO of Twitter and found a 61% spike in anti-Semitic tweets referencing Jews or Judaism. would have no doubt that those statistics align with other religious minority groups, with other uh, marginalized and vulnerable populations generally. But that's the, those are the statistics we have. So you know why why is this so important? It's a reflection of the the larger issues, but really it's it's about communities when it comes to the hate and intimidation that people face when uh, their religious identities are attacked online.
3: And if if I can jump in, I think that. First of all, I think ADL is doing some of the best work possible on, on this part of online hate and, you know, especially how it translates from online hate to real world violence and hate crimes against communities. Um, I would also just say that, you know, we talk often about the intersectionality of identities of marginalized communities. There's also a lot of intersectionality among the people who are doing the hate themselves. In other words, if you are somebody who is uh, anti Semitic, especially if you're a white Christian nationalist, you're also more likely to be Islamophobic. You're also more likely to be racist and anti-black. And so there's an intersection of hate there that I think is very important to keep track of uh, and not to view these things as in isolation Um, because chances are, you know, the same group that's being hateful and spreading these messages does it across groups. There's also, I think what's just as disturbing is the exchanging of ideas and tactics between hate groups, both within the US but also internationally, um, you know, in India there is an explosion of um, Hindu nationalist rhetoric targeting Muslim minority populations in India and Kashmir, especially, also Christian minority populations. Um, and a lot of the tactics that they use to spread um, hate speech and viral uh, uh, video and speech, um, they, uh, they explicitly adapt from uh, white nationalists and white supremacists in the US. So there's this exchanging of ideas of how to spread hate and tactics that's honestly, you know, it's amazing to watch, but also like so frightening um, because, you know, hate speech and hate movements are not being contained by, you know, borders. Uh, By individual country borders. And so I think both of those aspects are important to to keep in mind when we talk about faith communities in particular.
0: Thank you. Paul, do you want to weigh in on this one?
2: Sure. Um, Yeah, Zaki um, uh, touched on what I think is a very important point, um, which is to say our our field of vision should be broader than the United States or North America. Um, In fact, if you were looking for a volume of religion-related oppression online, you would go outside the United States. We, we live in a paradise by comparison to India, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, uh, and, and a number of other countries where um, uh, online discourse is um, really poisoned by a combination of religious and, uh, and ethnic uh, animosity. Um, and these are places, frankly, uh, where the uh, platforms, to the degree that they pay attention to these issues, have paid the least attention. So you've got the worst problem, the, the, the least understanding and oversight in terms of people devoted to uh, moderation, enforcement, uh, people who speak the languages, understand the cultures uh, and, and so forth. Um, I want to add a, another point, which is, um, you know, we have a, a whole other category of problems on, um, on fringe sites, um, for understandable reasons, we focus a lot of attention on the more or less mainstream sites, uh, entities that outsiders, uh, advocates and others can have a civil conversation with. Um, but you know, no, no one is listening to this um, uh, panel today over at Gab or 4chan and saying, oh, you're right, we got to drop all this bad stuff we do. Um, and the policies aren't there, so the enforcement is not there. The whole point of the site is to gather and uh, spread hate. Uh, in the United States, there is not much we can do about that. The First Amendment pre- prevents the government from stepping in and setting policies, let alone making uh, enforcement decisions uh, for these sites. Uh, you know, Unless people are threatening to gather uh, and commit imminent violence, uh, there's not a lot that outsiders uh, can do. But we can be aware of it. We can be aware of when ideas germinated on those sites uh, make the leap into the mainstream, and we can pay attention to it and bring to, to public attention um, what, it, what is going on there. Because a lot of the extremism um, that, ha- much of which had racial and religious overtones that led for example to January 6th was uh, what percolated initially on a combination of fringe sites and mainstream sites. And then the actual organizing was often done in those same venues. Uh, so all of us need to pay attention to this, do what we can to uh, to bring it uh, bring sunlight to it, um, while you know law enforcement people do the very limited amount of things they can do um, when actual violence is threatened.
1: Just to jump in there and to build on on what Paul just said, which is, you know, the ping ponging also between these darker or more fringe platforms to mainstream platforms is one of the core motivators behind the normalization of extremism. I have white supremacy and one, um, you know, body of platforms that I want to bring up, too, is the online multiplayer game space. You know, there's been a lot of attention paid to online multiplayer games as media. These are digital social spaces where millions of Americans, adults and youth, especially, uh, are engaging in conversation. Um, you know, we have pretty alarming statistics. Of course, that's you know, where a lot of our work lies. 20 percent of adults uh, were exposed to white supremacist ideologies and online multiplayer games in 2022. 15% of youth ages 10 to 17. So these conversations are proliferating in the dark web. They're pro- proliferating in online multiplayer game spaces. They're proliferating on mainstream social media platforms. And that thread is what's really causing the normalization and this invitation to engage in online and offline violence.
2: Not, not just gaming proper, but the gaming adjacent platforms, some of which are now you know uh, supersized social media platforms in and of themselves. Uh, like discord um, and twitch which spin out of the gaming world but now you you know you have a lot of gamers there but a lot of other people too and uh you know you can go on discord and join a private server and uh you know be anti-semitic and anti-muslim you know to your heart's content and the outside world will will not be watching so it's uh it's a fast evolving environment
0: you're hearing the expert panel discussion Interfaith Alliance brought together on the topic of big tech, hate, and religious freedom online with Zeki Barzinji, from Aspen Digital, ADL's Lauren Krop, and Paul Barrett from NYU's Stern School of Business. What are the resources that people like the people on this panel and those of us who, who those who are listening to us who are committed to a, a truly peaceful and pluralistic, respectful society? What are our what do we what tools do we have at this point uh, in order to um, uh, begin to stem this tide or, or reverse it? Uh, what are where do you place your I know I keep on saying greatest hope, but I know it's going to be holistic. So I'm happy with that, too. What, where do you place your hope? I mean, where, Zeki, where, when you at Aspen Digital, where where do you try to, um, if you want people to really focus on a thing, what do you where do you want to focus them?
3: That's a big question. And if I uh, figured that out, I probably would be out of a job because <laughs> my life depends on finding more problems to solve um so as so my job at apps digital is to look at the intersection of tech and marginalized communities um i think what i said in the opening to me is the fundamental problem it's the lack of meaningful inclusion of marginalized communities at every step of the design and implementation of emerging technologies a lot of companies have really good like dei programs and they've got good communications and marketing teams that can engage with communities after the fact, but there is really no concerted effort to bring in these voices at the earliest stage of product design. Um, and that might seem like a kind of dry area to focus on, but to me, it's it's actually everything. Um, because the questions that come up here are like, who defines hate? How? Who defines bad content and good content? You know, what is actually offensive and hateful towards a particular community, oftentimes only that community can tell you. And if you're not doing a good enough job of including them in the development of these tools and platforms, even unintentionally, you're going to give rise uh, to the spread of of, of hateful and especially uh, uniquely targeted content against those communities. So to me, that's the most uh, urgent thing is to radically reshape the way tech companies do product design. There are some companies that are starting to lead a little bit more in this space, um meta for example has created a product equity team or inclusive product design team um again with all the layoffs that have been happening who knows how long a team like that is going to last at meta um but there's certainly a desire to move more in that direction i think the problem like i said is that as we we often have heard companies talk about diversity equity and inclusion from purely an hr perspective like how do we hire more brown people essentially is, is is what they ask themselves that's the wrong question at this point the question at this point is how do you include communities in the fundamental design of your products and platforms and that takes something much you know broader than just an hr approach and i think that if we can solve that part it's not gonna fix the problem. It's not gonna stop the spread of hate, but it's certainly gonna enhance the tools that we use to confront the spread of hate.
0: Lauren, Paul, where, where, where do you, um, play? You know, we all have limited resources and a limited ability to um, to focus our, our organizations. Where are you focused right now as far as um, responding to some of what we've been talking about?
2: Lauren, if you wanna go first then.
1: Sure, no problem. I think uh, I think two, twofold, you know, like a, there's a, a myriad of, of things we need to focus on, but I'll, I'll highlight two right now. First is, um, you know, building on what Zeki mentioned, which is this diversification of who is building our products. Who is creating these spaces? And is there a sense of anti-hate or equity by design, just as we've seen a swing towards privacy by design in building? Certainly not sufficient enough by any means, but the design feature is important. Um, you know, I'll mention that last year, ADL engaged in um, building an online hate classifier, an anti-Semitism classifier, by using both experts and targets of anti-Semitism to help Fuel the the AI and machine learning techniques that, that drove this classifier and that that um, created um, and uh, allowed us to stand up this classifier. The, if if a small nonprofit can do that, certainly these billion and trillion dollar companies can do better and do more to include uh, a diversified workforce and also communities to help build their products. Policy, you know, important and robust policies are. Are crucial. Uh, Paul mentioned the uh, disbanding of a lot of trust and safety personnel at the major tech companies. That's a huge issue. Um, so it's the combination of policy and enforcement. But at the end of the day, I think a focus that we we cannot uh, look away from, and I know this has been mentioned on the panel, you know, prior to my my bringing it up, is the fact that the business model um, currently underpins and supports the proliferation of a lot of the content that we see. You know, we are, um, we're living in an online world that optimizes for engagement. And often the most corrosive or hateful content is the most engaging content. And that is what creates a system where, you know, platforms can can take our, our behavioral data and then use that to put more and more and, you know, for deeply engaging content, whether or not it is problematic, violent, hateful, um, and then also service advertisements, because we truly are the product when it comes to these platforms. So that business model and that incentive structure has to change, um, because it is really the foundational underpinnings of the content that we see.
2: Thank you. Well, Yeah, well, uh, good luck changing the basic business model. Um, you know, there, there's no obvious way to do that um, from, from the outside. And, uh, you know, as long as the business model pays, even if it's paying, even if the, uh, the boom in Silicon Valley has in some ways plateaued, certainly for companies like Meta, where they see their Facebook, uh, platform, uh, you know, its growth has, has leveled off and actually begun to erode. Um, I don't see, um, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg surrendering uh, the advertising and engagement-driven model um, anytime soon, and it's very likely that what they're trying to do is figure out how to do that same model um, in the new uh, world that they're imagining—the so-called metaverse of 3D immersive technology. All that said, I think about uh, this question in, um, you know, in two two pieces: one, self-regulation; the other, government regulation. Uh, Because we're talking about an expressive industry um, that enjoys itself a good degree of First Amendment um, protection, it is not a simple thing for uh, government, any any extension of government, to tell these companies what to do because they're in the business of speech and specifically conveying the speech of other people. But nevertheless, their choices of what they choose to put on their platforms is expressive conduct or editorial control pulling uh, you know language from various uh, past Supreme Court cases um, in light of that we have to do what my colleagues have said private individuals civic society groups advocacy groups have to figure out ways to bring pressure to bear on these companies to um, uh, bring light to what they're doing and frankly it's to- a put pressure on them to embarrass them uh, for the things that they're not doing that they should be doing um, and hope that through that process, uh, there will be incremental change. There has been incremental change. I mean, you know, content moderation was not taken at all seriously at these companies before the 2016 presidential election debacle. It was Only after then, beginning in 2017, that the companies even would talk about that uh, issue publicly, let alone devote resources to it. So things have changed, but not enough. The other piece of the, of the answer, I think, is government regulation. Again, it has, it's going to necessarily be limited because of the wise restriction contained in the First Amendment on government uh, interfering with uh, speech of private entities, including these companies. That said, there are mechanisms for doing this. Um, my center has done research on and, and has produced uh, some writing uh, on the idea of using the Consumer Protection Authority of the Federal Trade Commission. Um, to uh, enhance the oversight of social media companies. Right now, social media companies um, are an anomaly. Uh, unlike other industries, this industry is just not regulated in any way by the, by the federal government. There's no SEC overseeing equity markets or FCC overseeing radio uh, and cable uh, and, and so forth. Um, it's not easy to cure that problem. It would take very judicious legislation but some of that legislation has begun to be introduced. And sadly, we're going to see that go sort of into remission or, or be ignored in the next two years, at least, because of the Republican takeover uh, of the House. But the concept of consumer protection, um, where you hold companies to fulfill the promises that they've made to consumers in a commercial context is admittedly a limited field, but is one where the FTC has regulated companies in other industries um, and forced them um, to fulfill the promises that they've made. In this case, it would be promises that are made, uh, for example, in terms of service or in the publication of community standards. And I can go on in more detail if if anyone's interested. And I can also put in the the chat a link to a paper that I've written on this idea about the FTC. but that's one promising limited uh, area um, where the government could do some good if we could get political consensus in Washington.
3: If I could just add one more thing real quick. You know, I'm always hesitant to place the burden of responsibility on the community that it's itself, that it is itself being marginalized. Um, but at the same time, I think just as much as it's incumbent upon tech companies to m- embed the community perspectives much more thoroughly and comprehensively, I think there's also A gap here where community leaders, like let's take faith leaders, for example, who might be on this webinar, you know, you all understand your congregations, your communities, you understand the impact that hate has on your communities, but you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily conversant in the minutia of how these platforms actually work. And that becomes a problem when we do have advocacy meetings where groups meet with tech companies but don't quite understand how to articulate the harm that's being done. It gives the tech companies an out to be able to say, like, well, they didn't really tell us how to fix the problem, so we're just not going to address it. So, one thing that we're working on at Aspen Digital is to create a program that provides basically a boot camp of how these emerging technology platforms are working and have that boot camp geared specifically towards community leaders, faith leaders and civil rights leaders, so that they understand and can become conversant in these issues so that when they do go toe to toe with tech companies, it's a more even playing field and that the power balance is no longer totally lopsided. And so I think that is especially needed is for community leaders themselves to understand how these platforms work so they can more effectively advocate on behalf of their community, communities.
0: I I love that. And I I, want to, oh, uh, Lauren, go ahead. I just want to say, I love that. And I do hope that we can partner with you on getting the word out about that because I think that's really, really important. Lauren, go ahead.
1: Absolutely. And I do too. You know, I think congratulations on that work. It's incredibly important. I do want to quickly address the business model um, discussion because I I do think, and, and call me an optimist, I think that's probably why I'm doing this work. But I think that there are moves that can be made consumer, you know, increased consumer protection, um, you know, regulations, increased transparency to be, to be able to look under the hood and understand how platform products and policies are, are operated and being enforced, um, considering increased privacy protections, relooking at the behavioral advertising model and, and what is what is and isn't able to be done. I know that there's deep and heated discussions regarding Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and platforms immunity from liability, antitrust issues. You know, We just saw the Department of Justice sue Google yesterday, I think, um, you know, amongst many times prior to that. Um, and so I, I do think there is no one single fix that's going to change the environment it, today. But I absolutely agree, certainly self-regulation Certainly communities, but also government regulation. Government does have levers that they can pull on um, both, you know, here at home and also internationally.
0: Yeah, I just want I want to say that I do think that the religious communities, in my experience, have kind of dropped the ball on this. And, you know, I'm not trying to blame the victims, but I am saying that, you know, I, I often have asked like big rooms of religious leaders, when was the last time you preached on the Internet about what's happening there? about what it really means, what it really is. And they never do. The only thing they say is, well, time to sign off, you know, take a day of sabbatical. That's not gonna cure it. And we need to be actually very leaned in. And and this is something where, you know, when the the Gutenberg uh, press came out, the religion was right in the middle of it and they had a very clear understanding of their mandate. Right now, religious communities have no understanding of their mandate and it's happening to them, rather than being leaned in and asking the question, like, how can we help shape this? How can we be trained in disrupting hate? Uh, You know, how can we be online? And how can we how can we figure out to be better citizens online? I do think that there's an opportunity there. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Up next, our panel will take some audience questions and later reporting on Big Tech, Hate and Religious Freedom Online. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. This week's panel discussion on big tech, hate, and religious freedom online featured Zeki barzinji from Aspen Digital, ADL's Lauren Krop, and Paul Barrett from NYU's Stern School of Business. There are court cases in front of the Supreme Court, and I'm just wondering, do, are, are any of you like... Is there anything, is there a there there, or is this just a, you know, it must to get to the Supreme Court, there must be some there there, but do you feel like there, anything good can happen there?
2: Um, I'd be happy to uh, uh, step in there. Um, yeah, there are basically, uh, there's a case that the court has agreed to uh, decide this term uh, called Gonzales versus uh, Google, um, and then there are a pair of cases which are out on the horizon concerning um, the uh, laws that have been passed in Texas and Florida that would restrict uh, the type of content moderation um, that large platforms uh, can undertake. And uh, the Supreme court just this week uh, basically postponed um, any decision making on the latter, the state law case uh, by asking the solicitor general's office and the justice department for its view on that matter. So that's all going to get pushed off until the Supreme court's next term. Uh, The case pending uh, at at the moment is basically about the scope of Section 230, which is a federal statute that was enacted in 1996 and which protects um, uh, basically Internet, uh, interactive Internet companies, which includes social media companies, protects them from lawsuits that point to as the source of harm content that has been posted on the platform by a third party. Um, this has been a, a, a huge boon um, to this industry. It allowed companies like then Facebook, now Meta, uh, uh, you know, YouTube, now part of Google, to get off the ground um, in the 2000s without having to worry about being um, you know, sued until the cows come home. Um, and it, it undergirds the whole basic structure of social media, which is to say businesses that use somebody else's content content contributed by users and manages to figure out a way to sell advertising against that free content um, to make a lot of money. Uh, and the question is, as to what degree uh, should those companies uh, today be shielded um, from lawsuits that say, hey, that piece of content on your, on your platform uh, is dangerous, it's, it's harmed me. The case before the Supreme Court was brought initially by relatives of a woman who very sadly was killed in 2015 um, in a, uh, an act of terrorism by the Islamic State in Paris, part of a, a huge uh, uh, massacre that, in which I think something like 129 people died. This woman's relatives are upset because uh, YouTube, part of Google, carried uh, uh, videos that had been upladed, uploaded by Islamic State. And they're saying, we should be able to blame YouTube, not just Islamic State, but YouTube, and get to its deep pockets because you uh, hosted and uh, recommended um, uh, this content, yeah. And
1: I'll just quickly add in thank you for for that, Paula. That you know these cases have the potential to have a huge impact on the landscape. Um, you know, specifically in Gonzalez versus Google, ADL filed an amicus brief in support of neither party, um, discussing this really important issue because of the. Sort of broad question be- before the court. We argue that uh, you know there's two main provisions in Section 230. One which provides an immunity from liability, and one which empowers platforms to engage in content moderation. And we argue that the um, immunity from liability provision has been over broadly interpreted, and that the um, the need to for platforms to be able to feel empowered. Uh, to moderate their platforms um, and to create communities that are in line with their values is incredibly important and should remain as is. It's a complicated line to walk, um, but it's an important one. And, and, you know, Section 230, which does, just like Paul mentioned, completely uh, underpin the way that our Internet works today. um, It was passed in 1996. And so the Internet does look quite different now than it did then. And yet we want to be able to have robust and free uh, discussion. So that line has to be walked. We, we believe Section 230 should be updated, but it needs to be done, you know, at the risk of sounding cheesy with a scalpel and not with a sledgehammer. So that's, you know, these questions, we're really curious. The, the uh, oral argument, I believe, is going to be heard in, in mid-February. So we're going to be watching very closely. Um, and then the cases that Paul mentioned, the state law cases um, taking on the Section 230 issue will be kicked until likely 2024.
0: Thank you so much. I think
2: I I should add in the interest of just full disclosure, our our center at NYU filed an amicus brief as well. Um, We supported Google in this case because the exception that the um, uh, petitioners are asking for for recommendations, we fear actually will turn, could turn out to be much broader and could basically eviscerate the law and sweep away um, a, a huge amount of free speech online. And there may well be changes that need to be made with 230. In fact, we have supported such changes, um, but that should be done across the street from the court um, by the Congress.
0: Thank you. I want to get to a couple questions that that have come in. Uh, One is just really, really practical. Aside from quitting Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media, what are the best ways for everyday people or religious leaders or everyday religious folks to pressure social media companies to be more responsible?
2: Well, I keep tweeting at Elon Musk, but he doesn't answer. <laughs>
0: it's just like uh, right, you know, what, what? What should people do? I mean, is it just really as much, as simple as quitting, or are there? You know, I don't. I can't quit. I mean, you know, I, I can't quit. Yet. Yeah. You know that that's not a really an option in front of me for my my work. But uh, what 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 are ways that we can we can make our voices heard?
1: You know, I'd love to hear from the other panelists, but I'll, I'll quickly mention. I think we have to. We have to think about this in both a micro and a macro fashion. At a micro level, the increased conversations that, uh, you know, Zeki and and Paul were both mentioning, um, but also conversations really with our youth being interested in how they're engaging online, not just saying, oh, that's you know too complicated or what what you know i'm going to bring up online multiplayer games again you know what are they even doing having really open authentic and curious conversations with people offline about their online behavior and about what's going on is really important i think that increased education that Aspen Institute is doing is is so important because people need to understand the impact of you know, what they're doing, the fact that if somebody is liking or retweeting something, even in rage, even in vehement disagreement, that's actually fueling the conversation. It's it's allowing platforms to profit off of that content and it's, it's um, you know, normalizing it. So, so knowing about our digital hygiene, helping and having conversations with our youth, that's the micro piece. And I know that there's more to it than that. And then at the macro level, you know, folks can get engaged, uh, you know advocacy organizations like ADL and and you know the great work of of Stern and of Aspen. You know we're doing stuff and we want to be able to engage with concerned stakeholders and community members. So you know whether that's uh, talking to our lawmakers, whether that's talking to industry, doing it in partnership at that macro level. Really, like I said, I'm an optimist here. It really can help us move the needle. Um, maybe not as fast as we'd like, but absolutely it's a necessary conversation.
3: Yeah. And, you know, I'll just add to that at both the micro and macro level and everything in between, I think education is the key point, you know, for us as individuals to understand not just the content that's out there, but how it gets distributed, you know, what the incentive structures are, us just becoming more knowledgeable about how the system itself works makes it it empowers us to do better advocacy. And so at the micro level, as an individual, you understand that, and it should also be able to then, you know, understand better what your family's doing, what your uh, children are doing, as Lauren is saying, Um, and at the community level, um, I think Paul, you mentioned, sorry, Reverend Paul, you mentioned, uh, you know, we should be smarter about this, especially when it comes to, like, our houses of worship. Um, I'll just speak for my own faith tradition. Most of the times when the internet is mentioned in a Friday sermon uh, at a mosque, it's about, like, the immoralities that exist on the internet, and that's about it. There's not a lot of talk about, you know, the threats, the violence, the hate, and how they directly affect us. Um, And to Lauren's point, you know, we have another program at Aspen Digital where we look at the intersection of youth and technology, and one of the biggest things that we're hearing is youth don't like the patronizing attitude that we tend to take when it comes to online protections because those tend to look like keep kids off the internet and that's it. And, and, And that's not a sustainable model, right? We have to understand that we have to take a rights-based approach to how we protect kids and how we protect everybody online. And the onus is not on kids or parents to keep them away from harmful content. The onus is upon those who are building the internet and building these platforms to build them in ways that are truly um, value the rights of its users more than it does the financial bottom line. Um, So I think that, again, education on all these topics is the most important thing from the micro level all the way to the macro level. I would encourage every major you know, faith organization or civil rights group to really read up on all of these emerging technologies to become conversant in it before you engage in advocacy, just so that when you do engage in advocacy, you do so from a place of knowledge and impact. Um, that's something that I cannot stress enough. I've been in many spaces where a variety of faith leaders come together to bash Facebook but they do it in a way that is so imprecise that ultimately it does not lead to any kind of actionable change. And it, again, in fact, it just gives an excuse for those companies to be like, well, they don't really know what they're saying, so there's nothing for me to act upon. So that's where I'll
2: leave it. If people are interested in uh, you know, uh, educating, particularly younger people, uh, you know, there is a part of the world where uh, uh, online literacy is part of elementary school education, and on up from there. Scandinavian countries have done this for some years. There's been some social science on it, and it's been found to be somewhat effective. Um, Scandinavian countries are a lot more homogeneous than the United States is. uh, But nevertheless, that's the one place where this has been tried out systematically. So if literacy education uh, sounds appealing, people should look at some of that research.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And actually, uh, another question was about uh, protecting youth. And I do think I think we assume because people, because the young people are young, that they are like, they understand the internet. And I don't think anybody, you know, it's understanding the Internet is hard, understanding the water into which you're jumping and, and you think, oh, that was made for me. Well, no, it wasn't made for you, actually. It was made for you as a consumer, but it's not made for you. So understanding into the, you know, these are these can be life giving or dangerous waters. And, and we have to let people know um, what they're what they're jumping into. Um Okay, this is, uh, I, I know that Paul's going to really be like, don't do this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, 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 is, there, is, there, is there a quick answer, because we're about to stop, is what gives you hope right now? What, What? where do you, you know, I love that you've said you're an optimist, Lauren. Let's start with you. What gives you hope? And again, we have like not a lot of time to, to answer this, but I'd love to hear it.
1: I mean, we're having this conversation and more and more we're seeing this conversation at all levels, not just with, you know, folks that are deeply entrenched in the technology policy space and not just with industry folks. I think that is hugely important. It's showing that we're getting smarter as a community and that we're not going to put up with the way, the status quo. And so that gives me hope. Um, I think that, You know, I I also hope to see increased self and government regulation um, because I think that we need it. But these conversations are truly, um, you know, heartening and inspiring to me to continue the work that we're all doing.
0: Okay, Paul. Um,
2: What gives me hope is that after a very sustained online, mostly social media related campaign to um, continue to amplify election denialism, Um, The forces of darkness were um, pushed back in our recent midterm elections, and people actually woke up, got off the couch, and voted um, for candidates who were not claiming that all elections in the United States are rigged. That's a significant event, Um, and um, we have to do, again, what was done um, in in the lead up to the midterms, which is to say, put a lot of attention on these ideas and how they spread. I think it had an effect, and I think the Senate remains in Democratic hands and the, and the Republican control of the House is tenuous as a result of that. That's a concrete accomplishment. Zeki.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think if anything gives me hope, it's, I mean, maybe it's cliche, but it's the youth of our generation. I think that Gen Z, I'm a, you know, uh dignified elderly millennial <laughs> uh and out of here <laughs> <laughs> i think uh i think gen z really um the ways in which they're engaging with the technology i mean yeah there's a lot of a lot more harms than there ever have been before but also this iteration is so much more savvy and understanding and empathetic in ways that they've never been before. And they understand things like intersectionality so much more intrinsically that I think even my generation did. They understand that if you're experiencing hate for, because of one community that you come from, chances are there's other folks just like you from other communities that are also experiencing that same hate from the same nexus. And they, they're they coming up with tools themselves to confront that hate together. And That makes me feel really good. I mean, I think that, you know, we were talking about Discord earlier, Discord for certain, you know, provides uh, spaces for hateful folks to, to gather. It also provides a great um, space for uh, people that are uh, working on social justice issues and confronting hate. Um, Discord has a very interesting community policy uh, in their approach to how they do content moderation. It's a lot more what you might consider to be democratic sometimes it works super well. Um, And sometimes youth are able to use uh, Discord's very specific community guidelines to really um, self-regulate, self-moderate in a way that's very healthy. Um, And so, you know, I think young people are truly the ones that uh, understand how to uh, hold power accountable. They understand, they don't take for granted the same old kind of uh corporate uh lines that have worked on previous generations and for that reason i i do continue to have hope in spite of all the dark clouds that seem to be gathering above us
0: this was such an important and timely conversation and we've got lots more planned for the months ahead stay up to date on future webinars and other events by signing up for email updates at interfaithalliance.org The expert conversation you've heard on today's show was part of the release of the new Interfaith Alliance report titled Big Tech, Hate and Religious Freedom Online. Advocacy Associate Rhea Coley led this project and as promised, she's back with some highlights. Rhea, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. All right. Well, yesterday was an exciting panel discussion. And what stood out for you listening to these experts talk about big tech hate and religious freedom online.
4: I think what was so fantastic about the three experts on yesterday's panel was that they all are approaching this issue from such different areas of the space. Um, It was just such a great discussion on the different ways we need to attack this problem and also the different ways social media and unregulated big tech is affecting um, users. So I think that was just the thing that stuck out to me the most. That um, each panelist had such a unique perspective and was able to bring their experience to the discussion. I think it made for a really awesome conversation.
0: I thought it was amazing. I also thought that they were very much in agreement. That they 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 they, they saw the problem. They 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 complemented one another. So I think the good news is that we've really begun to identify some of the real issues that are happening. And one of the ones that came up for me, which I thought was really interesting was who's at the table when they're creating the technology. I just thought that was really helpful. And all three of them recognized that as an issue. What what was a kind of point that made you say, oh yeah, that's of course.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think to that point that I believe Zaki specifically brought up that nothing is going to change unless tech companies involve marginalized communities in the shaping of their platforms. You know, people like to point to things in the tech world like algorithms and say that it's just numbers. How is bias supposed to be involved in this? Um, And I think I would recommend a really great documentary called Coded, Coded Bias on this. But the point is that with any new technology Humans are the ones that created it. So all the biases, unconscious or conscious, are inevitably embedded in the makeup of that that technology. And this is really more than DEI. This is about involving people from the start, from all kinds of backgrounds and identities to ensure that the technology that it's created or changed really has in mind the scope of the people that are going to be using it.
0: Absolutely. I thought that was an excellent point. I was kind of surprised at the lack of enthusiasm for the um the the opportunities for government regulation. I mean that 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 just felt like there wasn't um as much opportunities there as there might be in ways of um public education of uh putting pressure on the te- big tech companies in other ways but that there there might be some legal opportunities ways to legislate this but the three panelists didn't really focus on that was that surprising to you
4: um not so much just because it's just hard <laughs> you know this this is a it takes a lot of understanding of the industry and also the product itself to really figure out ways that we can change it and that really goes to show that big tech has the most power to transform social media and it's and the impact you know on our society and on our democracy it really is up to them you know we can do right. what we can from the outside the government can do what they can but this really requires people the smartest people who have the most understanding of the product to take a look and see what needs to be done to transform it
0: right I, I thought one of the most disheartening moments which I you know I I think is very smart was the economics. That um, Paul Barrett mentioned, which is like right now, economics are hard for tech companies, and the first to go are the things that they need to be amplifying more, which is con- content moderation. People who are really looking at the way these uh, um, people are being impacted. So that I thought that was also something really interesting. So let's turn to the the, the report because this was um, this panel was inspired by a report that you. Uh, largely headed up at Interfaith Alliance, which is looking at um, big tech and hate online as an issue of religious freedom, as an issue of how we can express ourselves personally and uh, as our full selves online. And some of the statistics that Lauren laid out, I mean, the ADL has done amazing work on like surveying this, but, you know, it's upward of 75% of people You know, Jews, Muslims, others have said that they feel harassed and intimidated because of who they are in online settings. And I just I found that terrible. What does the report offer as something to hang on to for people who may not be professionals in this area? They just want to change something in their community or in their own life. What does the report offer for someone who so that people who are going to download it have something to look forward to some sort of hope?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the report lays out, you know, sort of policy proposals in three different areas. We talked about regulating big tech and, you know, what platforms themselves can do. But I think to your point, something that communities and um, communities can really do is focus on social media literacy. Um, this basically means that people online should be equipped with the tools to recognize misinformation, hateful content, and understand that there are factors outside of just people posting horrible things that influence them seeing that. Um, And I think from there, just being a more educated person um, online can really help people understand, you know, what they're reposting, what they're reading, what kind of impact it's having on their community and other communities. So I think social media literacy is really something that I think we need to have a a national conversation about, but also locally in communities.
0: Absolutely. I mean, one thing I brought up, it just, it seems like we assume that young people especially know how to do everything. And I think that it's really important for young people to bring to the question of social media. What am I liking? What am I promoting? How am I um, showing up for people who I see being attacked in front of me? I mean, you know, some of the Opportunities are to show solidarity when you see someone being attacked for who they are. Maybe just say, "Hey, I see you, and I and I want you to know that I'm I'm with you, even as you're getting attacked." And you know, I just think that there's opportunities. So uh, my hope is that everyone listening will go to interfaithalliance.org and you will be able to find the report and download it and share it with your community. It's really uh, one of the wonderful things about this report is that it is easy to read while addressing complex issues. Any advice for someone who is about to download it and where they might be able to use it best in their life?
4: Yeah, I think the primary way this report can impact listeners is just by understanding the tech industry a little bit more and understanding what their social media presence means um, in the grand scope of this industry. Um, and I just want to I just want to mention like a specific example that hopefully helps people contextualize how how like simple things like a tweet can impact their whole lives. Um, you know, in the panel, uh, Paul Barrett made the point that as the economics of the tech industry change, you know, we're seeing mass layoffs from tech giants like Google and Microsoft. And he said that the first jobs to go, which we've seen is gonna be in the content moderation areas. And that's already happened. And a specific example that I would point people to is that a Hindu nationalist in India tweeted about an interfaith wedding and basically mobilized so many people around this propaganda that the bride and groom and their families were harassed with phone calls and really scary threats. And they had to call off the wedding (laughs) because the staff for content moderation and hate speech in all of Asia had basically all been fired. And this Hindu and Muslim couple were victims of this insane flurry of activity around a conspiracy theory because nobody was there at Twitter to get the tweet pulled down. And this is this is this couple's life, <laughs> you know.
0: Oh my God. That I had not heard that story. That is horrific. It is a perfect example of the power of the internet to do good. You could, you could just as easily use your power to do good. Instead, they used it to promote hate and destroyed a couple's lives, the opportunity for them to have love. This is what we're talking about. This is what's at stake. This is a religious freedom issue for people to be who they want to be, love who they want to love. I mean, this is, you know, that's like a perfect example for why this is so important and why everybody needs to be paying attention to this and get smart about it, get aware about it and contribute in whatever way you can to finding solutions to this.
4: One of the things we spent some time talking about is how engagement is really the driving force behind how platforms lift up and suppress content. And it's not difficult to imagine that algorithms have picked up on the fact that hateful posts or quote unquote controversial things get a lot more engagement than others. So even if you're sharing something that you disagree with, and I think Lauren made the point on the panel yesterday, it still gets seen by a lot of people, and the algorithm recognizes the content as something that keeps people on and engaged with the platform even longer, which I think can be pretty easily applied to that example of the couple in India.
0: Rhea, thank you so much for all your work on this and bringing this to more people's attention, and we really appreciate it at Interfaith Alliance and State of Belief.
4: Thank you. Thanks for
0: having me. To download this report on big tech hate and religious freedom online, go to interfaithalliance.org. It is free and available to you. We hope you will download it and share it with the people in your life. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this sweet show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. We'll get the latest on the state of Christian nationalism and the new Congress from journalist Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I
4: think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.